If you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. A few weeks ago, I paused from preaching in the book of Hebrews because I had several things on my mind that I wanted to share with you. Today, I'd like to go back and this may possibly be the last message that I preach on this particular subject, but I didn't want to leave that subject hanging as I knew that I had a few more things to say. As you're turning to Hebrews 11, we're going to be looking at verse 32, and I want to ask you, what does a scaredy cat, a fraidy cat, the son of a prostitute, an adulterer, and the adopted son of a priest have in common? A scaredy cat, a fraidy cat, that's the only way I need to distinguish those two. A scaredy cat, a fraidy cat, the son of a prostitute, an adulterer, and an adopted son of a priest or preacher have in common. What they have in common is they're all in the hall of faith. These are men that were marred and marked by the sins of their life. And yet God in his overruling and overcoming providence was able to use them. And they have portraits in the hall of faith today. So if you sit there and you think, well, the Lord could never use me. The Lord could never utilize me in his service in any way. Then you need to think about these guys. Plus the ones that we've already talked about. Let's read verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and Jephthah and David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. As we bring our thoughts to some conclusion on the hall of faith, I believe the subject today would be into the heart of the hall of faith. The heart of the hall of faith. We've seen some amazing pictures, if you'll think back on what we've looked at in the book of Hebrews, 11th chapter, the hall of faith. We went from the foyer, if you remember, that has Christ all over the foyer of faith when you're walking in, and then you come into the hall and you begin to see these different ones. I want to remind you of the portraits that we have seen. Don't ever forget that if you are a believer, which I believe you are, in the creation of God, then your portrait is the first one in there. It's like a mirror. If you believe in creation, you see your reflection in the uh, hall of faith. You are the first one that's there if you believe in creation. And then we've seen the portrait of Abel sacrificing his lamb. We see the portrait of Enoch. I picture him being translated, maybe riding on fiery chariot like Elijah did to heaven because he didn't die. I picture in my mind the portrait of Noah maybe nailing the last wooden nail or the last spike into the ark with just a few days left to go before the Lord's judgment comes. I picture Abraham's caravan as he had loaded up everything that he owned, his family, and headed out from Ur of the Chaldees. I picture that caravan moving across the desert into a place that he did not even know where he was going. I picture Sarah holding little Laffy. That was his name. Isaac's name means to laugh. And I picture... 90-something-year-old Sarah sitting there laughing and holding that baby, thinking how amazing the providence of God and the provision of God is. Uh, I picture Abraham standing over Isaac, maybe looking up to the heavens as the Lord speaks to him with the knife raised up, about to plunge the knife into the heart of his son and sacrifice the most precious thing that he had, which was his only son. And the Lord says, wait. That's how I picture it. I picture blind Isaac finally giving in to the will of God, and instead of resisting the will of God, blessing Jacob, the younger uh, child who was to be blessed over Esau. I also pictured old, sad Jacob 
sitting there on his deathbed, on the edge of the bed, with his hands upon the children of Joseph as he adopted them as a dying act, acts of faith. I picture old Joseph who'd been through so many trials and tribulations and sufferings. I picture him as he's on his dying bed pointing his finger at them and and having them promise him, you will take my bones out of Egypt whenever we go, which was about 300 years away. You might maybe picture also the movie, The Ten Commandments, where there's a scene, as I've told you before, that they they actually visualized them carrying the body of uh, Joseph out of, or the bones of Joseph out of Egypt as they went out. And then you might see the portrait and think about Jochebed and Amram as they hid their baby Moses in the house somewhere for those three months instead of giving him over to the abortion knife or the abortion drowning. You might picture that. Or you might picture Jochebed and Amram, the mother, as she put the baby, that's the most familiar portrait of her putting baby Moses into the basket. You see, these are all beautiful portraits of faith from the hall of faith as you walk through the the great hall. You might picture Moses down in the slime pits, trudging along, making slime to make brick as he has relinquished his adoptive rights, which he has been adopted by the son of Pharaoh. Can you imagine the Egyptians laughing at him? There's a prince of Egypt who has chosen to go down and be with his brothers and his sisters in Israel. And then the portrait of Moses as he fled Egypt. Remember, he didn't flee in fear. He says he did not fear the king's command, and that is why he fled and went away. He fled in faith to go away to another land, and he was there for 40 years. Great picture of the, pa- of the Passover where you see Moses sitting in the house there with the, with the uh, sacrificed lamb and the blood on the doorpost and the death angel moving through Egypt, taking the lives, calling in the debt on the firstborn. Remember, he called in the debt of Israel and Egypt. And the only thing that kept the debt from being taken of the Israelites was the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed on the doorpost. Then there's the amazing picture of Moses walking down the dry shod in the midst of the Red Sea as it was congealed on both sides and the host of Israel, the millions of Israel following him. You might even squeeze the picture big enough or enlarge it big enough to see the other end of the sea as the Egyptians have come down in there to destroy them and the waters coming over the top of them. The deliverance for the Israelites through the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptians. And then you might picture in the portrait Joshua circling Jericho those seven times on that seventh day and they blew the seven trumpets and the walls, as the song says, came a-tumbling down. And then you might picture the scarlet line in the window of Rahab's house that no doubt many people walked past and said, what is that? Why have you got that red rope hanging from the outside of your window down the wall, which is what she let the spies down by? And she didn't, she didn't tell anybody other than her family and close ones that she got into the house that day whenever the walls came tumbling down. You might also picture maybe uh, Rahab as she came into Israel, as she smiled and all of her family, this former prostitute, walking her family in, being welcomed into the nation of Israel, the only ones that weren't destroyed in the walls when the walls came tumbling down of Jericho. Then you might picture Gideon, who was the first scaredy cat that I mentioned, He was the youngest of his family. The Apostle Paul says, time would fail me to go into that story. I say the same thing today. To tell the story of Gideon, who was the youngest in his family and was so afraid 
you can count up how many times God confirmed again and again and again and again to him that Gideon was going to deliver the people from those enemies. Gideon had to have a sign again and again and again. He was scared to death. Even to the point of the night of deliverance that the Lord said, if you're afraid, then go down there, crawl down there like a beggar on your hands and knees and and listen at the edge of the camp of the enemy. And you'll hear that I've delivered you. See, God is so good to us, is He not? That He would take a scaredy cat like that and be so merciful and patient with Him. Or what about Barak? He might be even more scared. He's a fraidy cat because he could not go out to war without having Deborah the prophetess go with him. So can you picture Barak walking out to war with Deborah the prophetess in front, <laughs> leading them? He was definitely a fraidy cat. And then you picture Samson who was this womanizer, this loner, this maverick. Sort of like a Hollywood star that everybody, all the paparazzi are, are paying attention to. And he lived in such a terrible way. And yet I picture Samson there with a thousand Philistines and that picture laying around him. But he's just killed them and he's exhausted. And he says, hip and thigh, hip and thigh, I've killed a thousand men. He got the, ball, the jawbone of the donkey in his hands. He thinks he's fixing to die. He's killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And then you think about Jephthah, who was quite possibly one of the most foolish men that's listed in the scripture, most foolish children of God, who actually sacrificed his own daughter when he went back after the slaughter of the enemy. He made a promise, a vow to God, which was one of the silliest and most ridiculous promises you've ever seen. But I picture Jephthah, who the Lord used. He was the son of a prostitute. And I picture him looking back on the 20 cities that he destroyed as he stands there and he looks across the valley and thinks, by God's hand, by God's strength, I have done this. And of course, we all picture the portrait of David where standing before the 14 to 15 foot tall, hairy giant Goliath who's cursing the God of Israel. (laughs) And David says, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he killed that giant. That's what we see in the portrait of David, who, by the way, was also the adulterer later in his life. Or what about Samuel, who was the adopted son of the preacher, who anointed David in the midst of terrible political times when the king himself, when the one who was in charge himself was looking for him to kill him. He wasn't afraid of the political climate. Are you? I'm not afraid of the political climate. I'm not saying that I like it. (laughs) But there's been many times throughout the centuries that the political climate has been hostile, as we'll see here this morning. God's not moved by that. Are you? If we're trusting in the Lord, we will not be moved by the things that, that, that happen around us. We'll be moved by the Spirit of God that God has put within us that will see us through any good or bad times. And Paul says in Hebrews 11, What shall I more say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and David also and Samuel and of the prophets. Oh my goodness, the prophets. <laughs> From Isaiah in the temple seeing the Lord high and lifted up to Jonah down in the belly of the whale. From the fiery speeches of Elijah and the fire falling from heaven to the meek and lowly shepherd Amos. From the weeping Jeremiah to the steadfast Ezekiel. From Hosea, the harlot's husband, to Malachi, who gave the last warning. Time would fail. How many years would it take to preach all of those different scenarios out? And we see those portraits hanging in the hall of faith. And brothers and sisters, I tell you, as we move along through this great hall... We have not got to the, gotten to the greatest yet. These are amazing moments in time. 
amazing circumstances. And maybe no doubt in your own life, you can think back of those moments whenever the only thing that carried you through was trusting in the Spirit of God and clinging to the Word of God. We have all had those moments when that's all you had. And you can maybe see your own portrait in those moments when it was only the Word of God and the Spirit of God that carried you through. Maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was a moment where you had to make a quick decision and you had to cling to the Word of God whenever everything else was screaming, go another way. You see, we all have those kind of moments. Those are beautiful, incredible portrait type moments that no doubt could also hang in the hall of faith. But we haven't reached the inner sanctum of the hall of faith. We haven't reached the heart of the hall of faith yet. As we move along the hall of faith and we make our way to the heart, to the inner sanctum, I tell you that all of these portraits that we've seen are mere precursors. They're very encouraging, are they not? And yet sometimes we shrink back and think, that can never be me. (laughs) But look at the flawed character, the sin of the people that God so often used in these circumstances and blessed to overcome impossible circumstances. Yet they were flawed individuals. These are but precursors to the heart of the hall of faith and I tell you to the heart of God. These are but precursors. And I tell you this, if these portraits that we've seen of these heroes in the hall of faith... What we're about to see can be nothing more than the superheroes of the Hall of Faith. And I use that word lightly because everybody's got the same measure of faith. But if you think these folks are heroes, you're fixing to see the superheroes. We're moving into the inner sanctum. These ten examples that are given here where it says they, through faith, subdued kingdoms. They wrought righteousness. They quenched the violence of fire. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All these different things you can think of. Great examples in the Old Testament. Glorious moments when victory was assured and God was glorified. And it says in verse 35, the tenth one there in that short list, women received their dead raised to life again. Could there be any higher note to transition from than the resurrection of the dead? Could there be any greater backdrop than the resurrection of the dead than to transition into the inner sanctum. So if those outside the inner sanctum were but precursors and heroes, we're fixing to see the heart of God in the heart of the hall of faith, in the inner sanctum, and what I would say are superheroes. Verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. Stoned, sawn asunder, that means sawed in half. Tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What we've seen here in the inner sanctum, what you see is total, absolute defeat in the eyes of the world. Are you with me? We've seen these great victories. Now in the inner sanctum, you see what looks like, and to the world, those great victories would look as great victories. David slaying Goliath, the the Hebrew children coming out of the fire. But here we see the heart of God. You know why it's the heart of God? I'll go ahead and tell you why it's the heart of God. Because these such things are what his son suffered. These things similar to this and much worse is what his own son suffered to gain your victory over death, over hell, over the grave, over your sins. So you see, you want to see the heart of God, you've got to go past the portraits of the heroes of faith and go into the inner sanctum and see the superheroes of faith. Look at verse 35 again. 
It says there were those who were tortured. There were those that would not accept deliverance. There were those that had trials of cruel mockings, scourgings, bonds, and imprisonment. I think of the Apostle Paul. I think of Peter. I think of Andrew. I think of the men that were in prison for preaching the gospel. In Acts, it says that they came forth giving praise to the glory of God after they were beaten and given many stripes and threatened. Don't you preach Jesus again. They came out saying it was a blessing to be able to suffer shame for the name of God. What is it that Jesus told Ananias of the Apostle Paul? Jesus spoke of this inner sanctum of the hall of faith. When he said to the apostle, when he said to Ananias that I must show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I tell you, the heart of God is found in the suffering of the saints of God when they are serving him. Remember, there's a different type of suffering now. You could suffer for doing, making foolish decisions or doing things you shouldn't do. We're talking about suffering when your eyes are set like a flint as Jesus' was to Jerusalem that you are not going to swerve, you are not going to sway, but you are going to stand no matter what comes. Now I'm going to tell you, I don't know when and I don't know where. It's likely sooner than later. But these things are coming back to the people of God. I would not be doing my job. I would not be doing my role as a preacher if I didn't tell you this. We know that in the last days, those perilous times shall come. We know that in the last days that there will be persecutions. It should not be a surprise in our most recent election that you see so many voting in favor of a platform that supports complete and total darkness. That's the way that the end times are going to go. Man is going to try to build a utopia on this earth, which will never work. But it, but it will be utopia-like, where everybody thinks everything's okay. And it says that men would say, oh, peace and safety, everything's good. We've got every, everybody's got what they need. We don't need God. And it says from Psalms 2 that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh at that. Because that's man in his nature. It says, we don't need God. We don't need Him in any form, you see? And when that happens, when that gets on top, you can rest assured that these things will return in full force. They're already at distant places across the globe, still. Different countries, different places, but it will come here. The United States of America, the only reason that the United States of America has been as successful as it has is because it has been a haven for the church of God. And the people of the church of God, and I'm not talking about you and specifically, but I have done this myself. We have taken for granted the fact that we have such freedoms and we have such privileges and we don't have persecution. We have taken that for granted. But the heart of God is seen in the suffering of God's people when they stand for his truth. You say, well, Brother Tim, what if I lose everything I've got? I can assure you, you've got mansions prepared in heaven. Say, so Brother Tim, what if I lose my life? I can assure you, your life is hid in Christ at the right hand of the throne of God right now. These things will return, brothers and sisters. And what has happened over the last eight or nine or ten months is absolutely nothing compared to what this is talking about right here. I would not be doing my job if I didn't tell you that. It is nothing compared to this. Whenever you see the suffering of the saints who stood for the truths of God, I tell you the Lord is worthy. Let me share a few of these with you. One of the reasons that there's no names given in this inner sanctum. Yes, there were those that suffered mightily in this way in the Old Testament. There's no doubt. And in the days of the apostles and in the days right after the apostles. But one of the reasons that no names are given is because a lot of this was coming in the future. The suffering of the early church. And by the way, the church of God, through all of that suffering, it's said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. <laughs> That that's what caused the church to flower. 
When they persecuted the church of 20-something thousand in Jerusalem, those people left and went out into the farming communities and the the towns and the cities around, and they spread that truth like wildfire, and it grew like wildfire. Where is Rome today? Where is the empire of Rome? It has fallen into the ashes of the church of God, the kingdom of God. We need to understand that's what God would have us to claim as our inheritance. (laughs) The church of God, the kingdom of God, is not going to take over the United States of America politically. But the church of God, the kingdom of God, when we preach it in truth and the power and demonstration of the Spirit, it takes over the hearts and the minds of the children of God. And they feel convicted that they are citizens of a higher kingdom. And no matter what comes and no matter what the governments of this world do or say, they will stand in those things. In 200 AD, there was a young woman. She was uh, barely 20. Her name was Perpetua. She actually delivered a child shortly before or after She was arrested for being a Christian. She came from a noble family. She came from a well-to-do family, wealthy family. And even while she was in prison for not recanting her belief in Christianity, her own father, who was a pagan, brought her child, her baby, and begged her through the iron bars of the prison, recant, look at the child, have mercy on the child. Brothers and sisters, what would you do? What would I do in that scenario? Only by the grace of God could you look upon that weeping child crying uh, for the nourishment of its mother and say, I will not recant my belief in Jesus Christ. That's tough. And while she was in prison, there was a slave who was with her named Felicitas who actually delivered her baby in prison. And when they were led to the arena, they were dressed in belted tunics. And when they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor. And in the stands, crowds roared to see blood. They didn't have to wait long, the historian says. Immediately, a wild heifer charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her ripped tunic, and walked over to help the slave girl Felicitas. Then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. This was too deliberate for the impatient crowd, which began calling for death for the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and friends were lined up and one by one were slain by the sword. The historian says that Perpetua actually took the hand of the gladiator who had the knife and brought it to her own throat. 258 A.D. From Fox's Book of Martyrs, Fox writes and says, Let us draw near to the fire of martyred Lawrence, that our cold hearts may be warmed thereby. The merciless tyrant, understanding him to be not only a minister, but also a distributor of the church's riches or funds, promised to himself a double prey, first with the rake of avarice to scrape the treasure of poor Christians, then with the fiery fork of tyranny provoke a recanting of their profession. The greedy wolf demanded where this Lawrence had bestowed the substance of the church. In the meantime, he caused a good number of poor Christians. Lawrence caused the Christians to be gathered and congregated. So when the day of his answer was come to give to the tyrant, Valiant Lawrence, stretching out his arms over the poor, said, These are the precious treasure of the church. These are the treasure indeed, in whom the faith of Christ reigneth, in whom Jesus Christ hath his mansion place. What more precious jewels can Christ have than those in whom he hath promised to dwell? What greater riches can Christ our master possess than the poor people in whom he loveth to be seen? And Fox writes, Oh, what tongue is able to express the fury and madness of the tyrant? Now he stamped, he stared, he ramped, he fared as one out of his wits. His eyes like fire glowed, his mouth like a boar formed, his teeth like a hellhound grinned. Now, not a reasonable man, but a roaring lion, 
he might be called. He says, kindle the fire, he cried. Of wood, make no spare. Hath this villain deluded the emperor? Away with him, away with him. Whip him with scourges. Jerk him with rods. Buffet him with fists. Brain him with clubs. Jest at the traitor with the emperor. Pinch him with fiery tongs. Gird him with burning plates. Bring out the strongest chains and the fire forks and the grated bed of iron. On the fire with it. Bind the rebel hand and foot. And when the bed is fire hot, on with him. Roast him, brawl him, toss him, turn him. On pain of our high displeasure, do every man his office. Oh, ye tormentors. The word was no sooner spoken, but all was done. After many cruel handlings, this meek lamb was laid, I will not say on his fiery bed of iron, but on his soft bed of down. So mightily God wrought with this martyr Lawrence, so miraculously God tempered his element, the fire, that it became not a bed of consuming pain, but a pallet of nourishing rest. John Bunyan in prison in the 1600s had a copy of the Bible in John Fox's book of martyrs that I just read to you from, as well as his own writing materials. In, in prison for 12 years for preaching the truth, portions of the truth that we now still believe and hold to and cling to. He also had at times the company of other preachers. It was in Bedford jail that he wrote Grace Abounding and started work on the Pilgrim's Progress, the second most popular book that sold besides the Bible during the hundred or so years following the 1611 King James Bible. In 1671, while still in prison, he was chosen as pastor of the Bedford meeting. While he was in prison, he was chosen as their pastor. By that time, there was a move of increasing religious toleration in the country. And in March 1672, after 12 years in prison, the king issued a declaration of indulgence which suspended penal laws against nonconformists. Thousands were released, amongst them Bunyan, five of his fellow inmates at Bedford jail. Bunyan was freed in May 1672 and immediately obtained a license to preach under the declaration of indulgence. Lady Jane Grey, around the same time during the reign of Bloody Mary, she was a Christian. The next victim that Bloody Mary put to death by having their head cut off was the amiable Lady Jane Grey, who by her acceptance of the crown at the earnest solicitations of her friends, incurred the implacable resentment of the Bloody Mary. When she first mounted the scaffold, she spoke to the spectators, Good people, I am come hither to die, and by a law I am condemned to the same. The fact against the queen's highness was unlawful and the consenting thereunto by me. But touching the procurement and desire thereof by me or on my behalf, I do wash my hands therefore in innocency before God and the face of you good Christian people this day. It says that she wrung her hands wherein she had her book. Then she said, I pray you all good Christian people to bear me witness that I die a good Christian woman and that I do look to be saved by no other means but only by the mercy of God and the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. And I confess that when I did know the word of God, I neglected the same, loved myself in the world, and therefore this plague and punishment is happily and worthily happened unto me for my sins. And yet I thank God that of his goodness he hath thus given me a time and a respite to repent. And now, good people, while I'm alive, I pray you assist me with your prayers. Kneeling down, she said a psalm. And then the executioner kneeled down, asked her forgiveness whom he forgave, she forgave most willingly. Then he dispatched her head from her body. I believe her portrait's in the inner sanctum. I believe the heart of God is seen in such a superhero. In the late 1600s in America, the Baptist minister who preached the same doctrine, that basically the same doctrine that we still preach today as primitive Baptists, the American Baptist pastor, Obadiah Holmes, and I leave you with this one because this is the, the last persecution 
Baptist persecution, significant persecution that is recorded, and it was on American soil prior to the revolution in 1776. Obadiah Holmes, pastor of the believed to be the second Baptist church in America, was arrested in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, put in jail in Boston. Some of you have been there, maybe. He was given 30 lashes in public for preaching the gospel, not according to the conformist church. In America, he said this when he was at the lash. They had his church stripped, attached to the post there in the public square with people all around, and they began to whip him as hard as they could. And Holmes said, having joyfulness in my heart and cheerfulness in my countenance, I told the magistrates, you have struck me as with roses. While he claimed to have felt no pain during the incident, he was so cruelly whipped that his companion, Dr. Clark, wrote that in many days, if not weeks, he could take no rest. But as he lay upon his knees and elbows, not being able to suffer any part of his body to touch the bed whereon he lay. Much later, Rhode Island's governor, Joseph Jenks, wrote, Those who have seen the scars on Mr. Holmes' back, which the old man was wont to call the marks of the Lord Jesus, have expressed a wonder that he should live. Obadiah Holmes' martyrdom and his persecution lived on because there was a man named Henry Dunster who was the founder of Cambridge College, which became known as Harvard. And when he came to the truth and recanted from false beliefs, they actually removed him from the founding board of Harvard because he believed in the truth that you still hold to today. Are you with me? Let me tell you something. This truth that we don't just nominally preach, that we don't just say, hey, here's a good option. It's the only truth. There's only one truth. It's a truth to live by. It's a truth to die by. These people that are in the inner sanctum, in the heart of God, in the inner sanctum of this holy of holies in the hall of faith, you might say, they believe this truth. What else could they believe? Some watered down trying, wishing, wanting Jesus who can't get anything done or a successful, reigning, ruling, returning Savior who has saved you from your sins. I'm telling you, that is the Jesus of the Word of God. That is the Jesus of the martyrs. That is the Son of God that still reigns in the hearts of God's children today and sees them through such things as this. Brothers and sisters, those days are coming back. Those days are coming back, maybe more swiftly than... I'm not telling you gloom and doom. I'm telling you glory. That's what I'm telling you about. To suffer for the name of Jesus is one of the highest marks that a child of God could ever have in this life. But we should prepare our hearts and our minds for such things. Now, lest we should leave off one last important thing in the inner sanctum. As we gaze at those superheroes, some of which I've just described to you, just a few, just a slice, just a little tiny taste of the type of things that God's people have endured and thrived through in all these many years of the kingdom of God. As you look around the inner sanctum wall, which I would say is a much smaller area than the great big hall of faith. (laughs) You come to the middle and I see there in the middle in the inner sanctum, it's the cross of Christ. Are you with me? You see, I don't know how we can make it through something like that, Brother Tim. I don't know how Jesus Christ made it through what He did. Only by the grace and power of God. But you have in Christ one that can identify with anything that you go through in this life. Whether it's suffering, whether it's prosperity, 
God is there and he is able to identify. I'll leave you with this quote from a book that I just was made aware of. The name of the book is The Making of the Man of God. He says this, and I know I don't usually quote as much stuff as I, as I have today, but I've done it unashamedly because I think it's profitable. And I'll leave you with this quote as we think about the cross of Christ. By the way, he's not on it. He's not on it. Let us sit down at the foot of the cross and just gaze at him there. Mark that thorn-crowned brow. Look at those hands and feet pierced with nails and see the blood. Look at that broken heart, the water and the blood, the gaping side. Think of it. This is the Lord of glory, dying amidst the scorn of the people he came to redeem. Think of him in heaven and all authority in his, in his hands and the angelic host around him. Then look at him hanging on a cross with the riffraff of humanity, sneering and gaping at him. When I realized that there he took my sin, the pollution and filthiness of my life, as if it were his very own, and then poured it into oblivion as far as the east is from the west, I say, Lord Jesus, thy love to me is wonderful. Let me tell you something. I'm part of that sneering riffraff. I am the sneering riffraff that looks upon the cross of Christ and thinks, how could he do that for me? When we started this journey into the hall of faith, I really honestly didn't know where, the, where it would lead. And I had no idea that this would be the end result of it. But as we continued along and I began to see this, there could be no more beautiful picture for the child of God and no, nothing more encouraging, especially in these dark times that are growing darker than to know that it is our desire. It should be our goal to press into the inner sanctum where the heart of God in the heart of the hall of faith and it is found in standing through whatever comes in suffering and counting it all joy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, walking down the aisle saying, I want to be a part of the Lord's church. That's not suffering. That's joy. The suffering may come later. No doubt will come later. But the Lord whose heart is towards us in all of our times and in all of the things we go through, He would have us to profess Him to love Him, to stand for Him no matter what storms, no matter what persecutions may come. I love you. And I hope that what I've said here today is honoring and glorifying to the Lord. And I hope whether tomorrow or 50 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, I hope that what I've told you, when those times come, I hope maybe you'll think back. Brother Tim told us, this is the heritage. This is not the tragedy of the people of God, but it is the glory of the people of God and the expression of the heart of God. May the Lord bless you this morning.